1: clemson podcast college football is back clemson are your defending national champions life is good welcome back everyone i'm your host nick and i'm so excited to be t-minus three days until the opener joined tonight by cast of writers from shaking the southland happy to welcome on once more alex kraft and the mysterious DBBM. and hopefully soon enough here we'll be joined by also john mcelhaney Uh, but alex and uh, matt how are you guys doing
0: very well, very well. Very excited for football to be back. By the time the uh, the beloved listeners will hear this, it should be what one or two days from from kickoff. So we're we're here, we're here, everyone. Title defense starts now.
2: Yeah, some, ever since August rolled around, I've pretty much been excited for football to start. So I'm just ready for it to be Thursday.
1: Yeah, it was uh, great to catch up on, I guess, week zero over the weekend. I don't know how much you guys watched, but we had a little bit of everything. You had some Pac-12 after dark with that Arizona game and that finish. Uh, Spurrier made an appearance in that Florida game after Felipe Franks threw a pick, which was amazing. Pretty sure Spurrier was nine scotches deep by that point. Um, And then Lee Corso had a reverse jinx for the ages for Clemson, predicting us to lose to Utah in the semifinals. So. Uh yeah, football
0: is back. <laughs> football um, is back. Football is back. You know, Corso. You know, I I could see uh, Utah winning the Pac-12 South, but that's that's not really a quite. That's not very uh, an impressive feat, honestly. So, good good luck to them. They uh, if they make it to the playoff, they will not beat Bama or Clemson. I'm calling that right now. So welcome back, Corso. Glad you were able to throw in the beloved reverse jinx because nobody wants you to pick them.
2: It does seem sort of like, though, if Utah was ever going to cash in, it would be this kind of year where UCLA is in the woods somewhere. No one knows what's going on at USC. Oregon is down. It's just like there is sort of a world you can see in which they get to the playoffs. I don't see them winning, but you can sort of see a world in which they get there. Like the Pac-12 South has kind of just been a random sort of outcome generator lately.
1: Yeah, basically you get by their – in-state rival BYU, which should not be a problem, and they've got a new offensive system coming in, at OC from Vandy. Believe it or not, Vandy had a top 25 offense last year, so yeah, uh, Utah should be feisty, but they're by no means going to uh, challenge Clemson or Bama, to your point, Alex.
0: But let's not forget, they have these Australian kickers who have a lot of tattoos and just a lot of, uh, what do they call it now, swag, and, and things like that so maybe we'll be intimidated by their specialists you never know
2: well yeah if there's anything you can specialize in it's the play that all the Hmm. math.
1: yeah i mean there must be a couple dozen aussie punters and kickers in the league or in uh, college football i guess power five by now so um some of the names are amazing too i'm I'm digging this trend but apparently none of them have made their way to uh the elite power five programs yet
0: no, well, that's the, uh, that's the next stop in Clemson's recruiting pipeline, which is expanding uh, as the brand expands. I'm sure we'll, we'll, we'll uh, tap into Australia next. We've gotten into Canada this year with Ajou Ajou, if I said that right, the, the wide receiver from, I think it's Alberta, uh, by way of, of Bradenton, Florida. So, you know, Canada, we just marked them off, and Australia's next. Maybe we'll get a, a punter who can do something soon from Australia.
1: I'm all about it. Keep Aiden Swanson on his toes. Um, well, guys,
0: why don't we stick,
1: stick with Clemson, again, defending national champs. Uh, just wanted to get your reflections really from this offseason. You know, you mentioned the title defense starts now. That's true. Uh, but just from a, I don't know, kind of a, a smack talk perspective and just Alex, I know you and Matt are both in South Carolina, um, really the epicenter of, uh, you. you could call it, Clemson, Clemson territory and Gamecock territory. Just curious how the off season's been.
0: It's been good. You know, I'm in Greenville now. I, once I graduated from Clemson, I, did, I had no desire to go back to Columbia where I went to high school. Uh, imagine that, um, and things have been good here. Now Greenville is obviously Clemson territory, but, uh, from what I've gathered from, you know, the few South Carolina people in the office is that, you know, they understand the lay of the land, uh, you know, you'll hear some Austrian jokes or some New Spring jokes, which, of course, I'll just play right along with because that just makes it obvious how ridiculous it all is. Uh, but they they understand how things are. They understand the gap between the programs. They understand Clemson's uh, really second to none right now. So it, it's been a fun off season, certainly. Um, you know, when you when you're the reigning champs, the off season it, it's fine when the off season is a little bit longer. You know, you're excited for the new season, of course, especially. Uh, given what we all expect out of Clemson this year. But when you're already on top, it's, it's not so bad when when you've got six or seven months to just soak that in. Uh, it's still somewhat surreal. Even coming off the 2016 title, it was, it was kind of surreal. You know, back then I was like, whoa, Clemson's actually national champs. This is what I dreamed about all throughout middle school when I really came of age in the Clemson fandom. In high school when we were so close under Tommy Bowden. Uh, and then, you know, my, my college years was, were the beginning of the Dabo Sweeney era. And we were, you know, he was going through, going through his, uh, growing pains as a coach. And my senior year, my junior year, junior and senior year, we finally started to break through, uh, early graduate years. We were really becoming elite. And now it's just, now we're here. And I don't want to say it feels like a birthright in hindsight, because I remember where, where we were 10 and especially 15, 20 years ago, not so much 20, but certainly 15. And it, it's 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 insane. It's almost surreal looking back on two of the last three years, two of these last, last three off seasons were national champs. And, you know, the off season is, is uh, not nearly as uh, full of angst because you're just soaking it in, enjoying it, when you can just look back instead of get into the weekly smack talk around who's ranked where, who looked awful versus uh, their schedule and, and whatever else the, the SEC is going to say about Clemson and the ACC right now.
2: Uh, I mean, personally, I honestly like I had to live with a couple of Notre, brothers who go to Notre Dame, but like that was grand opening, grand closing. It, uh, I, I haven't really mentioned that since about you know a week after that. Kind of spoke for itself. No one really had any desire to speak about it after the fact. I mean, just one thing that really was wild for um, sort of like winning this game, and I guess also last year's, there have been a lot of programs that have made the playoffs one time or, like, gone and then, like, bounced out, like, spent a few years out, came back, but to be sort of consistently making the playoffs and putting yourself in a position to win, even the rebuilding year with Kelly Bryant at quarterback, like, we managed to make the playoffs is sort of, a, I, I did not think that was a position that a lot of people saw Clemson getting to this quickly.
0: Yeah, well, you, you hit on it. A number four finish was a rebuilding year, uh, at least on offense, certainly, and that. That, uh, that speaks to the level of where this program is. You could say it's because of the conference, and you wouldn't really be wrong, but it, it really is more, more to do with Clemson, and they're the, just that far ahead of, of everyone in their region outside of Alabama who they've finally eclipsed. But, you know, Bama's still at the heels, but it, it really is. If a rebuilding year is a number four finish, that's, that, that says it all.
1: And I think that was part of the question coming out of the 2016 championship was like, of course, we felt that sense of exuberance, joy, but also relief that kind of Clemson got there. in the end of that, Deshaun Watson, Mike Williams, Jordan Leggett, Artevis Scott era, um, you know, to, to have not won that would have just really been devastating, I think, for all of us. And then it was a rebuilding year the next year. That's not this was a different offseason. I think there is also that, that anticipation looking ahead to this year, bringing back so many pieces At least on the offensive side, that you could really see us. I I think the 2018 season, as I kind of shared on a couple of our previous shows, was really um, about continuing to validate that first championship. And um, it really does signal that Clemson's here to stay. I think you guys are right in terms of, you know, again, being able to be a perennial playoff team and that establishing the program is that. But um, to get back over the hump in the fashion they did against Alabama, I think for me, you know, again, like this year, there's a lot of anticipation going in and seeing what, what they can do as a return act. Um, obviously, there are some question marks. I'd love to get in, into those with you guys about this year's team, but it just feels different. And honestly, I feel like this offseason's season's flown by a bit compared to years past.
0: Oh, yeah, for sure. You know, touching on that 2016 team, uh, that, that really was a, a, a year that was full of pressure, not just to get that title, but in a sense to also validate the, the 2015 run, you know, cause Clemson was really good, but not great. And almost there, uh, all throughout, you know, 2012, 2013 and 2014, kind of took a step back with Deshaun's injuries and, you know, Cole Stout who finally got his vindication against Oklahoma and in, in the bowl game, the Russell athletic bowl in 2014, which was great. Don't get me wrong. But 2015 was kind of like, are we really this good? Is is this? Are we really about to go to the playoff? Um, so the twenty sixteen was was so full of expectation because we were expected to be so much better. And then you know there were some struggles. There were a lot of uh, iffy moments, and it finally caught up with us against Pitt. And, and Nick, you you touched on the frustration and the and the and the the fact about oh, are we really going to get back to the playoff? And after that Pitt loss, I thought that was it. I thought we squandered our chance for a national title in my lifetime, almost at least in the next five years so to speak because you know I didn't know what we had coming in the pipeline certainly but when we yeah, lost them, yeah mm-hmm. when we squandered that game I was like well that's it we just blew our shot best team in my lifetime we just blew it but you know a few other teams lost that night and Clemson didn't even you know they fell from what number we fell from number two to number four so we were still in the top four after that week and just because you know a couple other teams lost I think Michigan or Ohio State or someone else who we were we Michigan were Michigan in
1: Washington them. Yeah, right.
0: We, we ended up getting back in. So, you know, it all worked out great, obviously. But but to look back on the angst we felt in 2016 with the unmet expectations, at least relative to what we expected regarding how good the team should look in 2016, you know, 2017, when minus Deshaun, minus Mike Williams, Wayne Gallman, Artevis Scott and, uh, you know, Jordan Leggett as well, a few other players. 2017 was a step back, but it was an expected step back. So we were just happy to keep winning, happy to get back to the playoff. And it was like, okay, this was supposed to be rebuilding year. Move ahead to 2018. And we all knew we should be a playoff team again. And Trevor Lawrence should take over at some point. And I think most of us at STS predicted – you know, it would take four or five weeks, which turned out to be exactly what it was. I don't think any of us thought Kelly Bryant would actually leave. So that was, you know, a bit of adversity, but that turned out to be a blessing in disguise because the team rallied around Trevor Lawrence, then rallied around Chase, uh, around Chase Bryce. And then from there, it was blowout after blowout after blowout, and boom, there we are, best ever. And now it's, it's now I feel we don't have anything left to prove. Now Clemson is there. Clemson is the elite. Uh, if not, even with Bama, it it may be slightly ahead of Bama and there's nothing left to prove. I don't want to say we should say it's national title or or bust, but it really should be with this, with the schedule, a playoff or bust. You know, you can't look ahead and say, if we lose in the first round of the playoff, it's bust because let's say we get Bama in the, in the semifinal, you never know what if Georgia beats them and we get Bama in the semifinal, then, you know, then it's like 2017 again, you can't really be upset. Um, and we're we're there now. We're, we're where Dabo always said we would be. And, you know, the expectations have risen with that. But I think this year, if Clemson doesn't win the national title, we can't be like, wow, it's a failure. It's as long as we make the playoff, as long as we're in that top four group, it is still a good year. It is still right where we should be. And it's still going to piss off everyone who is tired of Clemson versus Bama.
1: Yeah, very well put. And I feel like, it's not slowing down after that either. Um, just in terms of the class lab we'll coming in in 2020, the returning depth next year is just going to be pretty much equally as impressive as this year. Uh, Gain that experience college, too. The other thing is, I feel like in college football,
2: just like when we're all basing this on, you really get like one or two slip-ups in a sport where it's all based around 18 to 22 year olds performing under pressure. Like, I think it's realistic to say that as long as you're putting yourself in, like, consistent position to have luck work out in your favor, it's hard to ask for much more in terms of the baseline. Like, I mean, we've seen that work out pretty well in our favor so far. So as long as it seems like the program is in a position to sort of challenge for that, and it definitely helps that FSU and Louisville have both walked off of their own respective cliffs. But, like, Clemson seems, like, to be pretty comfortably in a position to challenge for the playoff for the foreseeable future as long as the coaching staff can stick together.
0: Yeah, and I think even if this coaching staff finally begins to uh, drift apart, which, you know, you could say Tony Elliott's the most likely candidate. I think by now we've all come to realize it would take an insane opportunity for Brent Vittables to leave. Uh, I think the most immediate danger has passed with Kansas State. Uh, Tony Elliott is obviously the most, uh, the most ready, the most eligible, the most obvious, for lack of a better word, candidate to leave early. But then you know Jeff Scott just takes over full time, so you know you know Dabo Swinney is prepared for this. He's he's always had a contingency uh, for everything. When when he knew eventually Chad Morris would go to be a head coach somewhere, and he knew he would promote uh, Jeff Scott and Tony Elliott. The only question was would they be okay with? co-coordinating duties. And I think after four straight years uh, in the playoff with, with those two calling plays, um, I, th- I think we've, uh, we've lost the right to really question Dabo's personnel decisions regarding his staff.
1: Absolutely. Um, so I guess, guys, I want to pivot slightly to this year's team and um, understanding I'm gonna start this part over. Yeah, Alex, I agree. I mean, in the continuity, I, I examined kind of the, the college football playoff contenders with Ryan and Tom on a couple shows ago. And we, it's really remarkable. Clemson continues to kind of bring this, its staff back um, and, you know, can't say enough good about how they've developed their talent. Um, if you look at the rest of the, really the field across college football, Top five, top 10, almost every single school out there is replacing a coordinator this year or replacing a, a head coach. Um, so, just to continue to have that continuity, I think clearly has worked in Clemson's favor. And Matt, going back to kind of the variance perspective, I have to believe that those two things are linked and are correlated. Um, what, you're, what you're expecting to get out of 18 to 22 year olds, um, when they, as they develop over the years, like having that reliable coach in their corner throughout. Um, has to have a profound effect on their ability to execute in those tight situations. Um, So I, I don't know. I feel like that is one of the secret components. It's not really a secret, but one of the things that is not talked about enough when people do talk about and choose to give Clemson credit.
0: Yeah. And I I think that's why you see, you know, not just uh, Clemson media and, and the coaches and, and ESPN talking heads talk about Clemson's culture. It's, it's not just Clemson's culture. That's why you see, that's the main buzzword in every new staff, every new coaching move, everyone nowadays wants to talk about the culture they want to establish. You know, looking ahead to Georgia Tech, and just you know, this week, the the number one thing on Jeff Collins' uh, agenda was was changing the culture, implementing a, a more enthusiastic, a more I don't want to say more vibrant, a more uh, modern, but that's really what it is. A, a more, a, a more competitive culture at, at Georgia Tech. That that really is the buzzword nowadays in every single new, new staff acquisition, every single new, uh, every single, every single team that wants some sort of change. The first thing they'll point to is uh, installing a new culture. And that's not really a coincidence with, with 18 to 22 year olds. It's not, th- these aren't professional athletes who are doing this 80 hours a week, so to speak. It, it's, it's, they're limited to 20, 20 hours a week. So you have to instill a culture of accountability. And I don't want to just regurgitate coaching talking points here because no one likes to read coach quotes. They're all just the same thing every week. But uh, it, it really is that simple, at least in, in Clemson's uh, sense. And and even in college football in general, it really is about establishing a culture where, where everyone holds each other accountable, where everyone is 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 really working towards a common goal versus just, you know, oh, I made it to college for free. Great. Or, oh, yeah, well, maybe I won't start for a couple of years, whatever. Um, this this really is it, – it can't be overstated what, what, what Clemson's culture is like. And that's – you see – you you see it driven into the ground. Honestly, it's, it's a a dead horse. Every time you hear Clemson's culture, you just roll your eyes almost. Even as a fan, I roll my eyes because I think, Oh, here comes more propaganda about how great Clemson is, whatever. But it's, it's really not a lie. It's it's true. It's why Clemson is where we are. It's, it's the culture Clemson has established and it's entirely Dabo Sweeney and the the staff he's brought in and, and onboarded and, and gotten them to buy in because that trickles down. and and everyone who comes into the program uh, buys into it or they they transfer out.
2: Yeah, and I think one thing that just, if you have a good program culture, you can allow just, you're never gonna have the ability in terms of like both time restrictions and number of players, like the ability to have staff watching people all the time. There's a hundred something players in most programs. At a certain point, it just is going to come down to players taking the onus on themselves to handle their own, you know, and take care of what they have to get done, particularly during those long off-season type periods.
1: Yeah, and you know, Clemson's not without its, you know, situations or foibles, you know, across across the team, but... Largely it's been limited. Um, what, what is also true, I guess Clemson owns when it does have missteps amongst its players. There's a lot of a public accountability to that. Um, you don't see that among its contemporaries as much. So um, anyway, suffice to say uh, program's in a really great spot culturally, and I think for that point, maybe this is what you're trying to make earlier, Alex with the shedding coaches talk. Um, number one, Dabos earned the, the B of the D on replacing. A would-be departure from tony elliott with you know he'll make the right call there Um, but i also think that that culture is going to be tough to break just by losing a position coach here and there as well or even a coordinator Um, venables being perhaps the exception to that
0: yeah like let's yeah let's say venables leaves you know if venables had left a couple years ago before mayor and mary and hobby went to the nfl if venables had gone somewhere else Marion Hobby was Dabo's choice. He already knew he had that contingency. It would have been Marion Hobby, defensive coordinator. Now Marion left before Venables, obviously, because Marion's in the NFL and Venables is still here. But let's say Elliott had left. It would have been, you know, Jeff Scott, full-blown coordinator by himself. I don't know who he would have brought in as a running backs coach, but that, that's an example of the fact Dabo always has a contingency plan. He always has his eye on someone who he would bring into his staff. Um, he knew he would, he would bring in Todd Bates when, when Dan Brooks retired after the 2016 season, uh, you know, cause, cause Todd Bates was, was a coach at, at his camp in 2014 or 2015. And he said, Hmm, one day he's going to be on my staff. Don't know when, but one day I've got my eye on him. Sure enough, Dan Brooks retired and boom, Todd Bates first call, Todd Bates accepted. Boom, here we are now. Todd Bates is probably the hottest recruiter, uh, who you haven't heard about yet. And who knows how long he'll be at Clemson? But he's already had what three first rounders in two years, so or what two first rounders with a couple more on the way. I, I don't know the exact number, but but it, Dabo always has a, con, a contingency plan for his staff. He's always prepared if someone for, for someone to leave, and and it, it's not just a one year stop gap, like what you see in Tuscaloosa, he's going to bring in someone who will stay, you know, three or four years at least, which is unheard of for assistance. I mean, even signing assistance to multi-year deals is unheard of before you had Brent Venables making 2 million a year for, for what, two or three years at a time. Usually assistants are on a year by year basis and they're topping out at, what, 750 K, which of course is nothing to sneeze at. But uh, when, when Venables got a million dollar contract a couple of years ago, it was a huge deal. Now all of a sudden he's what a $2 million man as a coordinator. That's, that's unheard of. And that, that is, that is it. That is culture. That is, that is the polar opposite of what we see in Tuscaloosa where coaches come in just to say, yeah, I worked for Nick Saban. This is going to look great on my resume. All right. I'm out in two years for my own head coaching job. People come to Clemson and Dabo can see right through that. Dabo says, all right, You're going to buy in. You're going to stay here for as long as you want to. And I'm going to make sure that that is a long time because
2: I'm going to make sure you actually want to stay here. Yeah, and I mean, I think sort of you, no one's under any illusions of what you're signing up for in Clemson. I think coaches that want to come out here want to come out here. Coach, football, get away from it and sort of be able to invest in a program that's a fun place to be a part of. And, you know, if that's what you're looking for, this is a really strong opportunity to do that.
1: Yeah. I mean, you mentioned the salaries of the assistants, Alex. I mean, at some point these coordinators are going to be making, like, it's going to take the type of like, how many ACC coaches make the same or less than Brett edibles at this point. And certainly he's not going to go to a, north carolina state nc state or you know wake forest or boston college from here um i would i actually feel like those programs are maybe now out of the reach of tony elliott as well Uh, so it really will take a compelling offer to pry those guys out um i i personally have my eye on florida state you know if and when willie Taggart bounces out of there you know is that a destination for like a jeff scott knowing what he does in the state of florida um we've kind of speculated on that before but um, in any event, yeah, we eventually will see the turnover. Um, I think we should have the confidence Clemson will regroup from that, and um, hope. my hope is they don't go to a division
0: rival. Yeah, exactly. I, I think, you know, I would say Venable's I don't think he'll go the Bud Foster route and stay defensive coordinator forever. I think he will be a head coach one day, but the fact that it still hasn't happened after four consecutive playoffs and what five or six consecutive top whatever defenses, the fact it hasn't happened yet means (laughs) what is it going to take? And, you know, regarding Tony Elliott, I, I I'm still shocked. Georgia tech didn't even interview him. I thought he was the perfect fit for them. Now I have come around to the, to the Jeff Collins hire, I've looked into Georgia Tech, their defense, their culture changed a lot this week just in, in writing an article, which uh, maybe you'll have read by the time this this podcast is, is public. But uh, I'm still shocked Tony Elliott wasn't at least interviewed for Georgia Tech, considering he played in the ACC. Now, granted, he played for Clemson. He's a Clemson graduate, Clemson man, and Georgia Tech is a rival, but it's a head coaching job. It's a business. I'm still surprised they didn't at least give him a look. He would have been a great fit. He's an he's an engineer, but you know your your point about Jeff Scott isn't something I'd considered before. You know his his Florida ties are deeper than just the fact he recruits well there. He was his father Brad Scott, who we all remember was an offensive line coach here and a, a head coach at South Carolina before before that. Well, before he was at South Carolina, he was an offensive coordinator at Florida State. You know Jeff Scott was born and raised on the Florida State sideline, and it's easy to think of him as a Clemson man because he went to school here. He's been on staff here for over a decade, but if if Brad Scott had not been fired when he was when if cuz Brad Scott was the head coach at South Carolina when Jeff Scott was in high school he went to Hammond in Columbia the next year Brad Scott was the offensive line coach at Clemson and his freshman son his 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 son was a freshman receiver at Clemson if Brad Scott hadn't been hadn't been fired from South Carolina in 1998 what if Jeff Scott had gone to South Carolina this is just quite a rabbit hole to go down, but, but Jeff Scott at Florida state, I don't want to say it's a possibility because, you know, it's a division rival. He couldn't betray Clemson like that, but you know, he, he only ended up going to Clemson because his dad was hired at Clemson after being fired from, from South Carolina. And he grew up at Florida state before that grew up on the sidelines with Bobby Bowden. You know, I could see him going to Florida state. If, if Willie Taggart or Kendall Bryles don't work out, which at this point, kind of have to say they probably won't given what we saw in year one you could say it's year zero but no it was year one there was still plenty of talent there it's just it, it's a culture change tying back into what we said earlier they, they need a, a wholesale culture change and I'll be interested to see what happens with with Jimbo Fisher's culture at Texas A&M you know things are always great early but give it five years if if the results aren't what they want if if that culture of enablement that culture of entitlement creeps back in you may see things go stale in College Station in five years, just like you saw in Tallahassee. And, you know, Jeff Scott would be a good, a good fit in Tallahassee, given his background, if Willie Taggart doesn't work out, if he can't change that culture. Because, you know, Jeff Scott will come in with his experience from Clemson and successfully change that culture.
1: This is something I remember chatting with Matt about, actually, is, is the reason maybe you didn't see Tony Elliott get the call from Atlanta or uh, we haven't really seen serious um, efforts to hire either of the OCs away, really a sign that people don't necessarily feel like Clemson's system and success is directly linked to those coordinators at this point. Like, basically, are they equating Clemson's success with Tony Elliott or with Jeff Scott together? Or is it just, hey, you guys have brought in the right talent. You're running a variant on Chad Morris's system that was there before. I'm not suggesting the latter. I think it's just a perception question.
2: Yeah, and it's interesting to see sort of Chad Morris um, not necessarily having a star dim, but not necessarily hitting immediate success running his system either. Like, or seeing Malzahn, who the system is based on, or honestly sort of like pretty directly descended from, Having, you know, very hitter, I mean, some of this is just crazy Auburn stuff, but like Maldon's not necessarily setting the world on fire with his concepts anymore. So it is interesting to see the idea of, you know, how much is just, how much of this is just having an incredible talent level and like every offensive coordinator wishes they could run this versus how much is the idea that these guys are incredible at scheming guys up.
0: Yeah, I, I don't want to sound like a homer here, but I, I think this was the offense Dabo Sweeney always envisioned. You know, when he was hired on full-time at the end of 2008, he retained Billy Napier and Napier, I'm not even sure how to say it, uh, as offensive coordinator who wanted to retain more of a pro-style, I-formation type type offense, which we saw from in, in uh, 2009 and even 2010. Uh, but Dabo Sweeney wanted to do more spread concepts. And in 2009 and 2010, it did not work because the personnel was more suited for the pro style like Napier wanted, but Dabo, you know, I, I think even the previous regime at STS would, would say, yeah, Dabo was totally tinkering in the offense, wanted to get more spread when we really would have been, been better suited for pro formate, for a pro style offense, uh, and when they decided to go their separate ways at the end, at the end of 2010, uh, Dabo purposefully sought out the latest and greatest in the spread offense. He brought in Chad Morris to, to implement the offense he envisioned. He didn't say, hey, Chad, I think you're going to be pretty good. Come bring in your offense here. He, he sold Chad on his vision of what he wanted the offense to be, and Chad Morris said, yeah, that aligns with, with what I can do. This isn't the Chad Morris offense, which is still at Clemson, because you know Tony Elliott and Jeff Scott uh, were understudies for Morris since, since Dabo knew from the very beginning that Morris would be a head coach one day. And probably within five years, it turned out to be what three? Turned out to be four seasons here. Uh, th- this is not the Chad Morris offense. This isn't even—you uh, you could say it's the Dabo Swinney offense—but really, this is the Clemson offense. This is the offense Dabo envisioned from the time he was hired. He just didn't have the personnel he wanted to retain his ace recruiter and Billy Napier. Uh, and yeah, there were there were some some contentious points in the offense between pro pro, uh, pro style and, and spread. Uh, Dabo eventually won that battle. It took a a pretty disastrous offense in 2010 to finally win that battle, but uh, he brought in his his vision of the offense through Chad Morris. It wasn't Chad Morris coming in, changing everything, leaving his mark. Now, of course, Morris did change a bit of the culture on the offensive line with tempo and, and everything, but that was still Dabo's call, still Dabo's vision. This is his offense when Scott and Elliot leave it's still going to be the same philosophy the same offense Uh, and I wouldn't be surprised if you see Brandon Streeter coordinating the the offense calling the plays if one or both of those two move on.
1: Yeah again a bit more promotion from within kind of staying consistent Um, I guess that might be a good spot for us to pivot to this year's team and um, I think some of the the biggest questions and where certainly Alex, where you've done the most writing of late is on the defensive side, but why don't we keep it with um, the offense here? And um, I, my hope with bringing both of you guys on and uh, hopefully John can join us here. Maybe not. Maybe he fell asleep. We'll see. Um, just as take a look, taking a look at some of the assumptions that people are making about what what this year's football team is going to be like. Um, we know the personnel coming back um, Trevor Lawrence, you know, not a huge question mark at the quarterback position. We have a lot of wide receiver talent purports to be one of the best O-line classes from a continuity standpoint Clemson has had. Uh, but one area where there actually is a bit of remaining question marks um, is on the tight end. Is that the tight end position? Um, and I want to keep that both with the tight end and get your, both of your input on that, but also with the wide receivers. And maybe I'll direct this question. First question here to Matt. Um, can you give kind of the layman's explanation for how Clemson uses tight ends in its system and thinking about the personnel we've got this year, um, you know, how much, or does it even matter that we use a tight end this year or what are your expectations with the tight end position? Well,
2: how Clemson uses their tight ends to the coordinator's credit has adjusted a lot based on the type of tight ends they have. But the type of tight end that you have second, maybe only to the type of quarterback you have, is how you define your identity in modern spread football. Almost everyone is running like 11 personnel the vast majority of the time. So the reality of the situation comes down to a lot of how you differentiate yourself is are you using a tight end who is primarily good at blocking, such as we have the last couple of years, or are you using a tight end as a receiving specialist, which is something Clemson was able to do more with Jordan Leggett. Because the reality of the situation is in college football, if you have a tight end who's pretty good at one of the two, that's probably your starter. And if you have a guy who's like passable at both, he might get drafted. Um, but what seems very likely from this year's tight ends is that we're going to have a return of the blocking tight end I believe the projected starter in chalk has all of four receptions as of now. Um, and like, I mean, there's a chance he's turned it on, but, uh, I don't think anyone recruited him with any idea that he was going to be the starter. Um, so when Clemson has a tight end who you can spread out and sort of hunt matchups with, that becomes a very powerful weapon on third down and in the red zone. Um, Otherwise, what winds up happening is that the tight end will, can still sort of be used as a decoy. You can use the defense's alignment rules against them just by flexing your tight end out as wide as possible and just forcing a corner to have to cover him. But outside of some value as a decoy or blocking on slot, you know, screens, you don't really get all that much out of your tight end in the passing game, which seems pretty likely again this year.
1: Yeah, that makes sense. And I feel like A a lot of what people have talked about is, you know, if you do get JC Chalk playing sort of the Garrett Williams type role, or even to some extent, that's really how Mylon Richard was used a couple years ago, um, that you're going to see that compensated for with just run, you know, Justin Ross, T. Higgins, DeAndre Overton out there. And um, you're going to beat the opponent with size and with Trevor Lawrence. And um, I I, I don't necessarily want to say that's a given. And wondering, Alex or Matt, if you guys have what your thoughts are on kind of, is that still an effective way to run an offense for a passing game?
0: Uh, yes. Uh, we, we saw last year that Clemson didn't really need a tight end, uh, in the passing game to move the ball pretty well. Uh, they had phenomenal outside receivers with T Higgins, Justin Ross, Amari, Amari Rogers as well. And then you had Hunter Renfro inside, uh, and later in the year, you saw 10 personnel, four wide receivers, where they were really able to get their playmakers in space even more, especially with Justin Rawson's slot against Notre Dame. Uh, this year, uh, Amari Rodgers, as we know, is going to move into the slot and take on that that interior quickness role, which Hunter Renfro filled so well. Uh, without Rodgers for the next month or so, uh, DeAndre Overton is the starter at slot, and I think he is going to fill – uh, more of a, tie, a receiving tight end role in that position because normally you want your slot guys to be quick and get open with quickness, uh, fast twitch, quick movements inside or outside, uh, gaining quick separation for quick throws, uh, whereas the tight end serves, you know, is also an inside receiver, but he's, he's more of a, a large possession target. DeAndre Overton, uh, no one is going to mistake him for a burner or someone who's very quick but he is a big body and he's 215 pounds. So he is effectively the receiving tight end until Rodgers is back and can take on your more traditional slot role. I don't think we're going to see much of a receiving presence from the tight end this year. And just unless Jalen lay really comes along, uh, gets the mental part down, improves his, his pass catching ability. Uh, apparently he's gotten better in both respects uh, from the spring and into fall camp. But as far as, uh, pass catching ability from the tight ends go uh, jc chalk is more like a garrett williams he's not going to be much of a threat as long as he has reliable hands when he's open in the flat or maybe you want to curl across the middle and third down take what you, take what you can get that is that is all we can ask from him uh, now apparently he's he's improved tremendously uh, since he's realized hey i'm the guy now Uh, You read a lot of those reports about guys who come in, aren't the most highly recruited, don't play for a few years. They're not content, but they just kind of take their snaps when they get in the garbage time. Then all of a sudden, they're juniors, they're seniors, they're at the top of the depth chart, and then they really start working to improve. By the reports I've read, Chalk has assumed that sort of mentality, but that still isn't going to compensate for, uh, I don't want to say a lack of talent, but... Uh, he's, he's no Jordan, Jordan Leggett. No one's going to mistake him for that. So while DeAndre Overton is in the slot, he's going to take on that tight end role where he's a bigger target on the interior. He's not going to beat anyone with quickness, but he's going to be a good possession receiver in the interior when he's in the slot. Now, when Rodgers is back, we'll move D. Overton back outside where he will spell Higgins or Ross in the boundary and be able to catch a few more fades, a few more things on the perimeter where he can use his length more effectively. But as far as uh, the tight end position actually goes, you know, I've I've rambled about how Overton is going to serve that big possession interior receiver role. Uh, as long as Chalk can block, can can make can actually, uh, you know, fulfill his assignments in the run in the run game we're not really going to notice drop-off. It's only when he's whiffing like we saw from Mylon Richard in in 2016 especially, and even in 2017 and 18, because he never really fulfilled his expectations. As long as Chalk isn't busting in the run game and doesn't have any outright drops, we're going to be okay at the position. It's not going to be a plus position, but as long as it isn't a clear negative, it's going to be fine. No one has any other questions about this offense.
1: Yeah. I'm curious too. you guys mentioned 10 personnel or four wide receiver sets. Uh, curious who you see, what configuration you see the most used in that scenario. Um, people are talking very highly of Joseph Nagata coming in from California as a true freshman. I suspect he'd be part of that config, but um, if you guys had to, had to pick, what do you think is the most, most
0: to it, it's, it, it's definitely, it's definitely Nagata. He's the super sub freshman like Ross was last year. Uh, you know, Ross came on at the end of the season, especially, uh, but that was sure even, uh, even before we started using 10 personnel very frequently when he was coming in, uh, rotating in for T Higgins, he was still scoring, you know, in September, he had what three or four touchdowns. He scored against Furman in game one. He, he scored against, against Georgia Southern on a deep pass where he had two ridiculous jukes. He scored against Georgia tech on a, on a busted play where they just didn't cover him deep. Um, and Ngata will definitely fill that role, much like Justin Ross. In fact, he may get more snaps, because let's let's not forget, Justin Ross did not play against Texas A&M because he was not ready. Ngata will be ready by all accounts. In fact, uh, he's he's the most uh, game-ready freshman since Sammy Watkins. The difference is Sammy Watkins didn't have five-star receivers ahead of him. Um, so Ngata will definitely be that fourth receiver when Clemson goes four wide. You may see Frank Ladson eventually, but when, uh, when Amari Rogers is healthy, you'll see – You'll see Higgins and Ross outside. You'll see Rodgers and Ngata in the slot. And Ngata is going to be that that X factor in the slot like Ross was last year against Notre Dame.
1: And typically would you – sorry, Matt. And typically would you also then see – are you going to have a running back or would you keep it with the H-back tight end sort of additional blocker along the line?
2: you would expect a running back from Clemson. They've been pretty hesitant to use the no running back formations with for a tight end, just because that sort of you're put in a situation in which your quarterback can have to carry the ball against a stacked box pretty regularly. And if that's not what your identity is as an offense, it's not necessarily worth putting yourself in that situation. Um, if you can just live and die in empty instead.
1: Right. Exactly. I think my question there was, also a bit predicated on what we think we'll get out of the, the running back position from a pass protection standpoint. Oh, not um, much. I, I just, I don't
2: think that, uh, yeah. I think you would rather have the threat of a draw from a running back than the quarterback is where the you know, offensive coordinator is probably going to decide that.
1: Yeah. And though we're all very fond of Trevor Lawrence's running ability and speed um, when he's out in the open, I think uh, his protection is a lot more critical for this year. Um, I guess schematically and, you know, when you guys think about the four wide sets, um, do you expect to see that ramp up this year? I guess we can compare that to maybe the last like six weeks of the season. Um, do you expect to see more of that? And what are the potential downsides that a defense defense can actually impose on you in, in, the, in the four wide? What do you have to really look for? One,
2: one thing I've kind of noticed from Clemson historically is that we've started off in more. Uh, like run heavy or 11, like sort of standard personnel sets. And then they sort of work towards um, with Deshaun Watson, it was more often to likely to be an empty set. Um, with Kelly Bryant, it would vary. With Trevor Lawrence, it's been 10 personnel. But there's sort of been a trend of the offense getting more spread as the year goes along. So I think we should just sort of bear that in mind the first few weeks. They might sort of be working on the bread and butter base stuff and then spread out. Um, is that we get later into the schedule sort of, I mean, we usually wind up looking almost like a big 10 team or a big 12 team by the time the playoffs roll around. And um, it's sort of like a gradual spreading out. One thing that I think is going to happen a lot um, until Ross gets back on the field is that as Clemson targets the outside receivers more, the passing game is going to wind up being more explosive but less efficient with the lack of a tight end or a slot receiving target on third down. And for an offense that historically has had pretty good efficiency numbers, that might be something that Clemson fans aren't used to and could lead to the defense being on the field for longer than they've been accustomed to, which might be an issue with the sort of lack of depth this year.
0: Yeah, and I think you'll see a bit of that in game one against Georgia Tech. You know, Georgia Tech for the past few years has been very conservative in terms of coverages. They've played almost exclusively zone, very soft zone at that. Uh, The main thing I've noticed in researching Georgia Tech's defense this year and even watching a lot of their spring game is they're switching to a predominantly press man team. That's going to be boom or bust from a defensive perspective. Uh, I think Thursday night you'll see a lot of probably – uh, deep touchdowns and a lot of uh, insane back shoulder or sideline catches outside from receivers who are just dominant in one-on-one coverage. But you'll also see uh, a less efficient offense in that regard since Georgia Tech is going to be far more aggressive. They won't sit back and let Clemson do what they want. They're going to force Clemson to take what they, what they will. And, of course, Clemson has better athletes, so eventually they will. But it won't be as efficient because Tech is going to force that issue outside. Um, Now the thing about press man coverage is that you often are left to run man under coverage inside, which means your linebackers are are covering uh, tight ends and slots or your safeties are covering slots and running backs. And those are where you can find mismatches. Um, So if Trevor Lawrence isn't picking on the, uh, the perceived mismatches outside or the the one-on-ones outside, at least maybe not mismatches because tech does have decent corners, certainly relative to the rest of that roster. The corners are a strength. Uh, but, but there will be plenty of mismatches inside uh, if, if tech is as, a, as aggressive with man under uh, or press man as, as they appear to be on film and, and uh, through professed upcoming philosophy.
1: And where does that, where does that scheme actually leave Clemson in terms of uh, Trevor Lawrence, not necessarily design runs, but ability to scramble. Do you feel like that we may see some of that as well in case, you know as a means of moving the chains
0: oh yeah yeah against man under that's when your linebackers are covering uh you know in man coverage as well as your corners uh usually man under a two man a two man under is when you have two deep safeties and your corners and your nickel are covering the three receivers and you have the two linebackers covering uh running back and a tight end that leaves no one on the quarterback except i guess those two deep safeties which is why often you see some Uh, man cover one robber where one safety is deep and the other safety is essentially spying Uh, that was kevin Steele's defense here by the way but it didn't really work out quite as well as it's worked out at auburn Uh, so if, if georgia tech is running a lot of man under that will leave a lot of running room for lawrence now that's not what he's known for so that may be why tech would probably run that now press man outside doesn't necessarily mean that they will run uh man under essentially because you know you could you can run press man out of cover four as long as it's an aggressive cover four like what clemson does you can still run press man out of cover four and that that still has has defenders looking at the line of scrimmage looking at the quarterback uh so i'm interested interested to see what what tech does regarding uh, defending against the quarterback run because i wouldn't expect it's something they'll account for it's not something uh we as clemson fans will clamor for certainly Uh, we don't want trevor lawrence running that much uh, for obvious reasons uh, so I think it's more likely he'll, he'll throw a lot of back shoulders, throw a lot of, a lot of uh, 50-50 balls, and trust his receivers to, to make plays over, over Georgia Tech corners who are good relative to the rest of the roster, but still not blue-chip guys who, can, who should be able to compete with T. Higgins or Justin Ross outside.
2: I also just honestly, and in college football it can so often come down to this, I don't think Georgia Tech can hang against Clemson if Bob wants to run straight up. And if you can't play Clemson's offense honestly against the run, you're just putting your corners inherently in bad leverage situations. And if you do that every single down against like wide receivers that you're just almost always less talented than against the quarterback who's the best in the country, something's got to give. Like, I think the fact alone that Georgia Tech can't play the run straight up is enough to put their entire defense in really compromising situations from the second the ball is snapped.
0: Right, right. And with them running a, a true 4-2-5, that third corner, that Sam linebacker is being replaced by a third corner, and he has, he has a gap responsibility. Uh, so assuming he's going to be mostly covering that slot receiver, that's going to require a safety and run support every single snap. So if they're running too deep, and man, under that third corner has to has to beat the slots block. Otherwise, Travis Etienne is going to have a lot of room to run. And let's say that safety is crashing in on the run every play. If they're running man uh, cover one robber, that where that safety is really really honing on his on his gap assignment more so than getting into coverage. Then that's where the one on ones outside are just going to manifest themselves. And you know it may not be as efficient as we would like, as what we would expect against a soft zone like we've seen from Georgia Tech in the past few years. But Clemson's still going to get their points, and it's going to be explosive. It will be explosive, maybe not as efficient, but certainly explosive. Uh, and, you know, some people have hedged because it's the first game of the year, and Georgia Tech is such an unknown because, you know, they're going through a transition on offense, as Matt already published uh, today on Monday. Uh, but as we'll see in the, in the defensive coverage, they're, they're becoming far more aggressive on defense as well. They're, they're going to utilize the, the bigger corners they have, the more uh, – highly uh highly ranked recruits at corner they have relative to the rest of the roster but if they are going to really trust those corners that's going to come with a lot of growing pains it's really going to to come with a lot of risk outside which clemson is is more equipped to capitalize upon than anyone else in the country outside of alabama
1: yeah i guess uh, georgia tech being one thing just from where they are as a program talent wise matchup against clemson i think things get a lot more interesting and difficult for this offense in week two um and there are other matchups on the schedule where defensively um it's going to be more of a test but where are you guys on what you saw from mike elko what he did with that personnel last year against us and in any of the other a&m games you guys saw do you have any expectations for how we'll see the the clemson offensive weapons be deployed
0: oh yeah yeah mike elko at texas a&m his main thing is dis- is disguising his coverages through late movement with his safeties uh, he'll almost always show a too high look and then bring a safety down or vice versa after the quarterback has gone through his checks at the line. It is why Kelly Bryant finished the game against Texas A&M last year. Uh, you, you'll remember uh, Trevor threw that touchdown to, to T. Higgins on the on his first snap, uh, had a couple other series. He He actually finished the first half for, I think, two or three series in a row, and we thought... You know, I, w- I was in College Station, so I wasn't. I wasn't watching the broadcast. I was, I was in the stadium, so I, I wasn't privy to a lot of the-, the, sideline reports and whatever else the commentators may have may have sa- May have said, but at halftime, I thought, Wow, Trevor Lawrence already took over. My goodness, and he came out there. I think he came out there at the beginning of the second half. Uh, but then, you know, he had a couple of drives stall where he didn't pick up a blitz. He didn't adjust the protection. He wasn't reading the defense properly because Elko was rotating his safety so late, showing a coverage, then actually swapping it, uh, even even flipping the coverage at the snap. That is what Elko does well. It is what I think is the, the most important thing a defensive coordinator can do to slow down uh, any offense. I think any coordinator who's not disguising his coverages, is really putting himself at a disadvantage and honestly not utilizing uh, his, his defense or his, his uh, ability to confuse as he should because uh, that's honestly the only way to slow down a truly balanced offense in 2019, even the past few years. The only way to really uh, slow down Of competent offense, one certainly a a talented offense as talented as Clemson's, is to confuse it. And you saw that early in the third quarter, and even probably late into the the third quarter, whenever, uh, whenever Bryant was finally inserted for good, uh, Elko was was disguising his coverages, confusing Trevor Lawrence. And he's going to do the same thing this year. He's going to disguise his blitzes, but more importantly, disguise his coverages. Because you can, you you can fool a quarterback with a blitz, and he can still throw it away. You fool him with your coverage, and he's throwing a pick, or he's holding onto the ball, and he's taking a sack. Uh, and I, I think Elko is going to do that no matter his personnel. Uh, there has been some turnover at Texas A&M uh, on, def- on defense just like we saw at Clemson this year. They've undergone more turnover than Clemson has. I think Clemson has uh, reloaded more on defense far more than AM has. I think Clemson is better on defense. I think Trevor Lawrence obviously would be more prepared for what Elko will throw at him. And I think Clemson should outlast AM and in what hopefully will not become a shootout. But if it does – clemson is better equipped to emerge victorious in it
2: i also think to build off alex's point about disguising coverages that it can in so many ways take advantage of what all but the very very best college quarterbacks use as sort of a like all but the very best college quarterbacks are going to be relying on their pre-snap read to make a lot of their decision and then adjusting after the fact that they have to like Tua Tagovailoa, for example, I'm sure I butchered that last name, but Tua, like for example, is very reliant on his pre-snap read, and then he kind of adjusts to whatever he's going to off of that. It's something that Clemson has actually been able to take advantage of against him. And against all but your smartest college quarterbacks, if you can throw off their pre-snap read, you can throw off a lot of what college quick passing games are based around if you can get someone thrown off of their read on, um, under any type of pressure, especially if your defensive line is capable of generating pressure against their offensive line straight up, you can just put the quarterback in a situation where they don't even necessarily know which direction to throw the ball away. In. Like, it just very quickly can put a college quarterback down in a way that it doesn't necessarily impact NFL quarterbacks who have an entire week to prepare for that.
1: Yeah, I think the the most glaring example of um, confusing a quarterback with a pre-snap coverage was what we saw on the AJ, Ter- AJ Terrell um, interception in the national championship game in the first series. Um, just to, you know, again, that disguise leading to it. I think he was um, fading back and jumping on the, on the pass underneath um, was amazing. So um Anyway, yeah, understood. And I feel like to your point, Alex, um, Trevor Lawrence has seen a lot, a lot of those looks since that game last year in Texas and um, should bode well for that matchup at home. Um, anything else about sort of what Mike Elko is doing there? I mean, should we expect? I think it was a relatively quiet game from ETN in uh, College Station last year. I'm, I'm curious if uh, we expect that to go differently this time.
0: Yeah, he uh he only had eight carries in in College Station last year, which was really the first uh, game of gosh probably about four or five in a row where I was just screaming about the fact we didn't feed him that much. Uh, you think about the fact he had what almost seventeen hundred yards, set a school record on only two hundred carries. You look over at Georgia, who's all about being running back year or whatever. They give their their top running back, you know, 350 carries every year, uh, then they wonder why they all have torn up knees and everything, whereas Clemson's setting, you know, yards per carry records and school records and rush yards on 200 carries. Um, Travis Etienne is going to have to be a much bigger factor this year, uh, not just to relieve Trevor, but uh, really because he when, when, when he is uh, actually carrying the ball 15, 20 times a game, I think he averaged, what, he averaged 14 carries a game last year. Let's see, 15. Yeah, he averaged 14 carries a game last year, which is just ridiculous. Uh, a Doak Walker finalist who only got 14 carries a game, imagine if he got closer to 20, he would have run away with the award. But I digress. Um, he's going to be a much bigger factor. He's going to be on the field more. He's improved in, in uh, pass blocking and pass receiving, pass catching. We know he had plenty of drops last year. Um, he has to improve in pass blocking. It's, it's his number one priority. And uh, all the reports I've read suggest he's improved receiving the ball as well. He uh, uh, is – Travis is a a quiet, good-natured, very, very uh, upbeat, but very shy kind of kid. And you would not expect it based on how punishing he is as as a runner. But his personality is, as crazy as it sounds, a bit more uh, obvious when he's about to catch a pass. He's a bit more timid. He thinks he's about to get blown up, which – Kind of matches his personality because he's quiet, unassuming, doesn't want spotlight. Uh, whenever the ball's in the air about to come to him, he's he's always like, "Oh, I'm about to get blown up," and then of course he's not. But he's uh, overcoming those jitters, so to speak. He's working with Trevor Lawrence after practice. He's catching the ball better. uh Travis Etienne really needs to be a three down back this year. um Everyone talks about J Dixon as the next home run threat. It's not that I'm not high on J, but he's nowhere near what what etn is he's not nearly the runner he's not as fast he's, the, the balance etn has is just insane and, and dixon still runs too too upright you know i'll be happy to see him get you know 100 carries this year but etn really needs to be closer to that george running back that georgia running back workload um i would really love to see him get closer to 300 carries this year now this is his money year so i i hate to just say yeah let's let's run him ragged when he's about to go pro because, you know, that, that's, that's one good thing about his light workload. He's had, what, 300 carries in his career, which is what most Georgia running backs get in the season. That's going to serve him well for a pro career in terms of earning potential. So that's great. Clemson's won a national title with only giving him 200 carries. That's great. But eight carries in what was the closest game a year ago? Now, it, it's got to be at least double that against a this year. Elko's going to try and confuse Lawrence. ETN is the remedy.
1: I think also what you saw in that game was Tony Elliott feeling out his balance of, of Kelly Bryant and ETN um, just in the running game. And in that second half, I mean, we got to give hats off to Kelly Bryant for what he was able to do with, with his arm and legs. Um, I think that may explain a bit utilization of ETN in that game, but um, Kelly Bryant's a Missouri Tiger now, and ETN is a focal part of this offense. As you saw against Alabama, very capable run defense. Um, he he got his. So, yeah, I agree. I expect him to impose his will um, a good amount this season. And it'll, it'll remain to be seen. I think, like, we can maybe put a bow on the offense here just by saying there is an embarrassment of riches from talent, but it'll be interesting to look at the mix and how Tony Elliott deploys that. Um, curious if you guys have thoughts on any of the, like, how much do they put on film? I do believe this team is going to get back to the you know, to blowing teams out again. And um, there's ways to do that against the opposition we'll be facing without revealing the entirety of your playbook. Uh, but yeah, just how much do they decide how many carries will ETN get? Um, a lot of that will depend on how many guys we want to send to New York as well. Um, there's a lot of Heisman hype for both Trevor Lawrence and Travis ETN this year. I don't know that the team or the coaches have, a, have an imperative or a priority to get get that done. Uh, but certainly both can be eligible for that. So um, again, it's it's going to be fun watching that all come together and play out. Um, the other thing, I guess, that we'll be looking for in the first couple of weeks will be the offensive line. I think the biggest question mark is going to be how does that line gel together? Um, a lot returning from a production standpoint and snap counts, uh, but Jackson Carmen is unproven at that left tackle position. I don't know that makes a ton of sense for us to speculate on it, but. Um, that's maybe one to watch certainly against Texas A&M is um, what's happening on the weak side with Trevor Lawrence in, in past protection.
2: I mean, yeah, there's definitely concerns about Carmen just because uh, one thing Clemson likes to do a lot is have offensive linemen. who can play multiple positions along the offensive line, but that leaves Clemson in an unfortunate situation where, where he can struggle to find pass blocking specialists. So while Clemson is usually pretty deep on guys who can play right tackle in either guard position, there has sort of, for the last four years, we've really been able to rely on Mitch Hyatt holding down the fort at, uh, like, just under NFL level, maybe NFL level. Um, And now there's not really necessarily all that much in the pipeline. Like, the backup plan is Tremaine Akram, who we – would not be thrilled about it left tackle. We've never been thrilled about the prospect of Ancrum at left tackle. So it just really comes down to, can Carmen keep the weight off? Is he in a position where he's a good enough pass protector? Or are we going to be looking for an inexperienced tight end or a running back who's not noted as a pass protector to be the person pitching in here?
0: Yeah, I think the only concern on the offensive line is Carmen's weight uh he's got a mean streak he's a very smart player he's he was a five-star he's got refined technique the only question is will he keep the weight off over the course of the season because you've seen players who check in you know emerge from fall camp and chiseled shape and then just go to seed throughout the season you know there are fewer workouts you're not working out as much because you have to recover during the week to to survive the next the next game we saw that with Taj Boyd in 2011 when he put on probably I don't even know how much weight during the season but he they started calling him the Pillsbury Doughboy halfway through 2011 Uh, we saw that with Tua Tagovailoa last year he put on weight and part of that was his injury but he he uh, still put on weight didn't take care of his body and it's, it's even more damning when an offensive line who's already 335 pounds uh, can't keep weight off during a season and you know a lot of players lose weight during the season especially if uh, they put on a lot of weight in the offseason tried to bulk up they'll lose weight because they aren't lifting as much they're running a lot of that weight off uh, with offensive linemen oftentimes you see the opposite happen just because their body types are, are naturally prone to uh, retain a bit more weight And I think my only concern on the offensive front uh, is Jackson Carmen's weight uh, I'm Grilled with 335, I hope he can maintain that because if he does, I don't think there will be an issue. I think this would be uh, Dabo Sweeney's best offensive line at Clemson without a doubt.
1: Great. So, I mean, I think across the board, we certainly probe the questions throughout this offense, but I think all three of us remain really bullish on what this offense can do and produce. Um, could, could in fact be uh, the greatest offense of Dabo Sweeney's tenure at Clemson. Um, I want to flip us over to the defensive side, where the we we knew coming into this year there were the most questions. Um, and Alex, I might actually flip this first question to you. Um, we had Quacking Tiger on earlier in the in the off season, and he talked about you know thinking about this coming year, the effect um, on the team just from a uh, losing the Power Rangers, seeing the defensive line turn over into the league. And he had an interesting observation. He thought that we would. Um, or we we did see Kendall Joseph, Trey Lamar, and to some extent Isaiah Simmons benefit and sort of come out looking a lot cleaner um, in, in coverage and in, in actually run defense um, that maybe was warranted um, just by the type of, you know, effect that the the big four had up front. And we would actually, he expected to see this year, um, the linebackers look to be, you know, draw some more criticism, let's say, look to be less crisp, less clean. Um, and, Having read your, your season preview piece of the defense and what you know, the, the coaching staff is likely to put together from coverages, what the personnel differences look like in that linebacker core, are you inclined to agree with QT that we're likely to see you know, linebacker, uh, not necessarily busts, but look like they're being put in more difficult situations? Or do you feel like actually you know, it should be kind of par for the course what we've been, what we've been seeing?
0: Uh, I think there's certainly going to be a step back in run defense. There's no way for there to not be. You know, you've got, gosh, there were, what, two five-star defensive tackles, two first-rounders at defensive tackle. Uh, then you had Cleland Farrell, who was probably the most well-rounded defensive end in the entire draft. Uh, not quite the pass rusher that that Nick Bosa was, but – uh, the most well-rounded defensive end, certainly, as a total package. And on the other side, you had Austin Bryant, who set the edge really well throughout his entire career, especially over the last half of 2018 with a, a torn pectoral. Um, there's no doubt there's going to be a drop off in run defense. And also, this year's linebackers are more uh, more coverage-style linebackers than they are pure thumpers, pure downhill blitzers, run defenders like Joseph and and especially Lamar were. Um, so. The linebackers won't be kept as clean, certainly, and they may not even be as effective when they are kept clean. I I, I think it's ridiculous to expect there wouldn't be a drop-off in run defense just by nature of what you lose up front and replacing the two inside linebackers. There's no way there won't be a drop-off. But that will be mitigated in pass coverage from the linebacker position. Uh, The pass rush itself won't be as good. I mean, you lose – the number four overall pick, plus, plus probably the best three tech defensive tackle Clemson's ever had. Uh, certainly the best pass rushing defensive tackle Clemson's ever had. Um, and then Austin Bryant on the other side, who most people are, erroneously referred to as the best pass rusher, that was still Cleveland Uh You saw that because he was the number four overall pick. Um, the pass rush won't be as good. The run defense as a whole from the front six won't be as good. Not a chance. But that's why you're going to see more fire zones. You're going to see just as many uh, bullet blitzes from the will, from the mic. Uh, those are run blitzes at the core. And it just so happens we also run them on, on passing downs to try and sneak something past the center in between the guard and the center. And they're, they're more visible as, as sacks because that's when people really notice them. But they're still run blitzes at heart. Um, So when Venables blitzes, of course, it's going to still be okay. It's going to look fine. Um, The best way to keep the linebackers clean is to send the linebackers in the backfield before uh, anyone has a chance to get to the line. But there is going to be a drop-off in run defense. There's no doubt just by replacing the front six. If you count Isaiah Simmons as 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 a pass defender as part of the defensive backfield, we're replacing the entire front six. Um, there, there's no doubt it's going to be a drop off. The linebackers won't look as good, so I, I agree with QT on that. They won't look as good in run defense, uh, but I'm really, really, really confident they will look better in pass defense once teams give up on the run because they have to try and play keep up, try to, try to keep up with the points Clemson's going to score.
2: The other thing is, from a run defense perspective, it would be hard for Clemson to improve. Like I think we should just note the baseline that they're operating within they improved would be one of if not the greatest run defenses of all time the idea that we're going to get that after turning over the amount of talent we turned over to the NFL is just like I mean that's an insane thing to expect so we should just you know operate in the realistic possibility that we're just going to have a pretty good to above average run defense for a while maybe it's a very good one
1: and it's easy to look at what Alabama was able to get on on the in the ground game throughout that national championship game, I guess I call it between the tens um, and look at that as, oh man, we're not bringing back, you know, um, the front four this year. But um, number one, I think if if we do face Alabama, they're going to have a different run game this season. Georgia may be one that you look at as that would be a tricky matchup for Clemson, Uh, but you have to ask yourself again, like throughout the course of the game with what you guys mentioned in the passing, um, they play four quarters of both, you know, both both types of offenses. Um, Clemson may be better suited in the passing game this year, and um, it, with Alabama in particular, like that was not their receiver shredding this defense. So to some extent, that was Brent Venables being willing to give them that, knowing that we had the edge in the red zone, and certainly not played out in that game too. Um, from a personnel standpoint, you guys have sort of alluded to it. And I want to direct this to Matt because you did a write up on the linebacker core for Shaking the Southland. Um, what is, we've been hearing a lot from uh, the coaching staff about James Skalski, Jamie Skalski. What does he give you that we didn't maybe see from Trey Lamar as much this past season?
2: Lamar has always had or Lamar had a very good straight line speed. He was actually fast enough to play Tampa 2 a little bit down the stretch, but what Lamar could not do nearly as well was move laterally. Um, this will come up in basketball defense pretty often, but in pass coverage he like he really just couldn't stick with slot receivers or any type of laterally breaking route, which was a I mean a very consistent and targetable problem in like short passing. What Skalski has is he's about 15 pounds lighter. And, I mean, he came up as a special team standout for a reason. He didn't just get on the field there because he tried very hard. He's an incredibly athletic inside linebacker at 240 pounds. Who, If he can stay on the field, he can stick with most wide receivers as long, as, I mean, at least for a handful of seconds. Which, with the kind of coverage Clemson is usually running, is all you really need. If he's able to get his hands on them and disrupt the vertical route, that's even better. But if he can just sort of hang around underneath, get his hands up and put himself in a situation to shut things down underneath or be able to make plays from the weak side, that's sort of what Clemson's looking for.
1: Yeah. I think when you, when you sort of add up what the back seven gives you in pass coverage and um, disruption from, or sorry, the, the dbs in pass coverage and what disruption you can get from the linebackers um i think that definitely bodes well for clemson in a high scoring game um i guess you know bottom line for this this defense when the game's on the line i'm just curious from you guys like which aspect do you feel is going to be most exploitable by opposing ocs and um which type of offensive talent is going to be most likely to take advantage
0: of that I want to say field corner just because we don't know what, what Darian Kendrick is like there. Um, I've full confidence in his abilities there, but I've never actually seen it. So I want to say field corner, but, but then again, you don't see many offenses really targeting their field receiver since your alpha is always in the boundary and the, and the field receiver is a lot harder to hit because it's, you know, you're you're throwing from the opposite hash. Uh, So I, and, been just thinking on the past few years maybe tight end Clemson's always been victimized by competent tight ends because of you know safeties in one-on-one coverage or linebackers who can't move laterally like we just like we just mentioned um gosh i really the only weakness I see right now is is giving up long drives to teams who can run the ball well uh, maybe Boston College Uh, Georgia in the playoff would concern me far more than Alabama would at this point, just because I think Clemson would eat Jake Fromm alive, but DeAndre Swift could be an absolute monster against Clemson. Uh, Just based on, you know, the type of defense I expect, based on personnel, DeAndre Swift would worry me far more than Jake Fromm. I would say a a quarterback with the arm to target the field receiver would be a concern since DK is still kind of an unknown just by, by nature of inexperience. Um, and any, any team that has a good tight end who can, who can attack the middle of the field. Because until, uh, until proven otherwise, that middle of the field is always going to be a vulnerability against Clemson's base defense. Um, and it's not like Clemson's going to suddenly go to man under all the time or, or a bunch of cover two, which will try and prevent those middle of field throws from being completed.
2: Yeah, I think that one place Clemson really might have an issue is against teams with the sort of offensive lines that can both run the ball effectively and up, like, you know, hold up and pass coverage on play action. One thing about Venable's scheme just from a like, fundamental standpoint is that it's pretty common for a safety or even a corner to have like a fundamental run fit, which, if you're able to shut down the run with our front seven, or even, you know, it's effectively a front six so often as Clemson's been able to do that doesn't necessarily become a problem but if you wind up in a situation in which Tanner Muse has to play the b-gap and react to a play action pass reliably like I mean you can very quickly see a situation in which that becomes problematic I'm going to sound like the most stereotypical Bears fan here ever but like you combine that with a good defense that can keep Trevor Lawrence sort of shut down turn it into a situation in which one or two scores can really impact things and that turns into a kind of classic underdog formula where you know you run the ball you try to limit the amount of time on the clock and then you turn it into a situation where a handful of long play action passes where a safety gets caught having to play you know the b gap and 20 yards downfield on the same play and suddenly that can really impact everything So it's going to be teams that I think are able to sort of methodically grind things down, limit the amount of time on the clock. Boston College would really be a good example of this, although I haven't admittedly done that much advanced scouting on them, so I don't know what their personnel is like right now. But it would be teams that are sort of able to get that going is where I would be concerned, particularly for the season upset.
1: And before, you know, folks roll their eyes at the prospect of BC, we did not see their offense on display a year ago. Their quarterback went out basically on the first snap of the game. Um, and who knows what, what Brown would have been able to do against Clemson. And again, we, have a, we had a different team in that, that, that matchup last year. but And Dylan yeah, I, was injured
0: too. Dylan was hobbled. He wasn't 100%. He's their best player by far. Has been for two years.
1: Yeah, two years ago – Um, I think is the BC game that, that I circle. And that, that game went well into the third quarter uh, before Clemson pulled ahead. And actually it might even have been the fourth quarter. I think Um, it was. And that is also a situation where Texas A&M again, their Jimbo tends to have kind of Clemson's number from the, the, those quarterbacks at Florida state were certainly not world beaters, but Jimbo Fisher always seems to find a way to generate a passing passing offense against us um, remains to be seen what they get from their running game. But that, that seems like the formula there um, as well. With Texas. Yeah. You know,
0: you know, Texas A&M has these, has these two outside receivers who are really great, but you know, with Clemson's corners, they won't, those aren't quite the concern. You know, last year they busted loose in the second half, more so to tipped balls or dropped interceptions. Uh, it, it's the tight end who's always going to scare me in the Jimbo Fisher offense. And fortunately that Jay Sternberger guy, I think I'm saying his name right. He went he went pro early, and uh, well, this is the bad news: that the five star freshman tight end who Texas A and M was super high on. He was probably going to start for them immediately. He is out for I believe he's out for the year with uh, with an ankle or a knee injury. So that's awful news. But uh, Clemson is do- dodging a bullet there with a, a five star tight end and a and a recent I think third third round draft pick who won't be lining up a tight end for AM this year. So uh, I do feel much better about this contest uh, here in a week and a half now than I did about a month ago, certainly six months ago before before we knew Sternberger was moving on.
1: Alex, would you be able to summarize uh, sort of your, your stance on what the personnel in this defense um, now means for Clemson in terms of what Brent Venables can dial up in coverages and why – you're not necessarily expecting as big of a drop-off, let's say, in the national ranking of this defense as maybe others are expecting?
0: Yeah, yeah. I think, I think first of all, the, uh, the fact that the run defense will take a step back, one, because how, how could it be as good as it was, uh, and two, because, you know, the loss of personnel is going to make it easier to run. I, I think that, that run defense drop-off will be mitigated by the fact that teams – will eventually have to give up on the run to try and keep up with Clemson and also um, the defense itself will take a step forward in pass coverage. Uh, Clemson has four experienced safeties. I don't think Clemson or or certainly uh, Brent Venables in his tenure here has had four safeties who he can just throw in without any sort of worry about who the starter is, who's better. They're all Pretty much interchangeable, you know. You've got Kayvon and Denzel Denzel Johnson at strong safety. You've got Tanner Muse, who's a better run defender at free safety, and Nolan Turner at free safety behind him, who's a better pass defender. You saw Turner playing deep safety a lot more over the second half of the season, especially on third downs, um, when they would either drop Muse into the box as a dime defender, or they just decided, hey. Turner's a better pass defender. We're going to throw him in there instead of Muse. Um, so with those four safeties back there, the coverage integrity, integrity should be a lot better. Uh, A.J. Terrell's going to boundary corner this year. Darian Kendrick beat out three other guys at field corner. Uh, coming from his role as a receiver, we know he has good ball skills. We know he's an absolute monster as a competitor. Uh, how well he picks up Brent Venables' defense defense, uh, all the schemes, all that's required of him is my only question in the secondary. And I mean, my only question, um, I could harp on muse and coverage, but he has great recovery speed when he does bust. He always is almost always there to bust up a play. Even, even, you know, the long pass to Jerry Judy at the beginning of the Bama game, um, Bama's opening touchdown after the pick six, he busted, but he recovered and just barely missed breaking up the pass. And there were three or four other instances like that last year where he busted, recovered and just barely missed um so you know that's that's really my only nitpick in the secondary is muse being a little over um and linebackers we've touched on how they should be better in pass defense you know and let's not forget you have isaiah simmons who is without a doubt the best sam linebacker in the country especially from a coverage perspective he can blitz but he can cover man to man there probably isn't another sam linebacker in the country who can cover man to man like simmons can downfield um because if if you have another Anyone else who's asked to cover the slot downfield and man to man, he's not a Sam. He's a nickel. Uh, Isaiah Simmons is the ultimate mismatch at that position, and that back five, including Simmons, is going to cover for a lot of the growing pains or the turnover, if nothing else, the turnover that we're going to that we're going to experience in the front six. And eventually, teams are going to have to stop running the ball because they'll have to keep up with with Lawrence and company scoring forty or fifty a game. So that's where the defense will really. Uh, make a step forward is in that back end
2: i also think just to build off your idea of um having muse come into the box like muse is only you know 10 pounds lighter than our starting weak side linebacker that position really starting to turn into and i think this is a like a way that it's going to go in the future that is going to start to turn into more of a like hybrid dime type position The other thing is, and we saw this a lot in the second half of the season, like they were pretty comfortable just running Simmons at weak side linebacker. And Simmons is like more than good enough to do that. He used to play safety. If you're going to put Mutes in there, you might as well bring Simmons down. And, I mean, we've seen the success converting a strong safety to Sam in terms of how Simmons performed. So I think they just have a lot of ability to move guys around um, and be very modular in the way that they approach things. And if – They're able to get any type of, they've usually had one of their inside linebackers use a pretty good pass rusher. Venables is a big fan of sending those guys on passing downs if they're going to stay on the field. Um, If they can find a pass rusher from sort of their inside linebacker positions, they really might be able to scheme up some pretty dangerous looking pressures with the kind of coverage they can put on the
0: back end. Oh, don't worry, Matt. The fire zone blitzes are coming. They're coming. Don't well, worry. I
2: believe that. I think they might be comfortable firing a lot of cover zero, though. Like, I mean, like in terms of how aggressive Venables has been, and in terms of how much better I think a lot of the second our secondary often is. Like, I think it really could turn into just getting after people pretty
0: quickly. Yeah, yeah. You know, my my one hesitancy with cover zero is Muse and man to man. Um, if he's one of the blitzers, then sure, that's fine. Um, Kayvon Wallace is a converted corner playing strong safety. So I think he'd hold up Isaiah Simmons. We know he can hold up, but use and man coverage is my concern with cover zero, but you know, down near the goal line or in short yardage, that's fine. I can live with it. So cover zero, I'm all for it. Anything that, that increases that havoc rate, because we know we won't get the same havoc rate from the front four. Um, We're going to have to manufacture a lot more this year and (laughs) yeah, bring on the cover zero then.
1: Yeah. And something we, haven't really touched on it. I guess we don't want to infer is that you're not going to see effective pass rush generated from the front four. Um, you know, Xavier Thomas certainly comes in. He's probably the most household name of that group um, coming back this year, but you look at least at the end position and we feel pretty confident in the two deep. Um, John did a good job kind of recapping that on Shake the Southland for his pre- preview. Uh, but I guess guys um, outside of his artistic abilities, Savior Kelly, what are we expecting from him? You guys been following any of his progression in camp?
0: Well, I think the fact that he's north of 300 pounds is the biggest factor, the biggest uh, sign that he will be able to contribute. I think he will be playing more of a three technique as a converted defensive end um, who's gotten over 300 pounds. Uh, I think three technique is where he can make an impact. Uh, Tyler Davis, the freshman, is a co-starter now along with Jordan Williams, which was kind of a surprise since everyone thought that Pinckney and Williams were entrenched as starters. And Davis would be a plus if he were able to provide depth which you know given the fact he was a mid-year enrollee as a freshman he was all but counted on all but necessary for him to provide depth but with him elevated to co-starter that is a positive development obviously uh xavier kelly or xavier kelly is the the fourth defensive tackle in that rotation Uh, it seems he will be backing up uh, niles pink at three tech and if if he can just get you know 20 30 snaps a game uh, whether the game's on the line or not, as long as there isn't that big of a drop-off behind Pinckney, that's that's a win. That's that's what we need, you know, because we're used to rotating four and, and at, honestly five defensive tackles into a game, keeping the starters fresh, even keeping the second-string guys fresh. That's going to be paramount, especially if Clemson is scoring as quickly as a lot of us expect. Um, if, if teams are choosing to run the ball at Clemson more than, more than they did in the past couple of years, given the, the turnover up front. Uh, Kelly's Kelly's a major 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 factor in in how far this defense can go and you know run defense we're all expecting a drop off and he has a lot of say in that because uh, in run defense it's not just who the starters are it's often who the backups are because defensive tackle especially is a, is a position that wears down so quickly because um, every single snap you're either busting it to rush to rush the passer or busting it to shed a block and move into your gap to, to fill a, a run lane um so Turnover, or, or not turnover, but, but the uh, rotation there is more important than anywhere else on, def- on defense in my mind, and, and Kelly is going to have a huge say in just how effective this, this defense is.
2: Yeah, I mean, your defensive tackle has to carry 300 pounds in, you know, southern heat. Just, you got to do everything you can to keep that guy fresh. One thing I think that's going to be interesting situationally that I really thought was going to go out of the window with Wilkins graduating Um, If we remember, Wilkins had to play defensive end for an entire season, and one thing he picked up, and every single Clemson defensive end picks up, is that Clemson defensive ends have to be pretty comfortable playing underneath pass coverage. So for the past couple of years, they were able to use Wilkins, particularly on passing downs, as sort of a three technique in pass coverage. And one thing that I think is going to be very interesting with Xavier Kelly having converted He was able to do that a little bit when he got onto the field in terms of playing in space when he was, like, lighter. If he's still able to drop into pass coverage at 300 pounds and at least, you know, get his hands up on, you know, two, three passes a game, it gives Clemson another look that they can send in terms of what they're doing with their pass rushes um, and what they're doing on third downs that I think could be interesting for Venables.
1: Totally makes sense. Um, Well, guys, any other kind of thoughts or, you know, interesting angles you're looking at on the defense uh, players you're looking at to emerge
0: or um, anything along those lines? I'm excited to see Tyler Davis. You know, there's been a lot of buzz. I missed the spring game uh, with a a family matter and I, you know, I went back and watched it, but I I didn't pay as close attention to, to Davis as I did uh, some of the other positions, so you know, I may go back and rewatch that uh, here in the next couple of days. But I'm excited to see the the new defensive tackles. You know, we've got depth at defensive end, so tackle, uh, tackle depth, and and even linebacker depth, which we won't see develop until you know the second month of the season. Once we survive A and M and Syracuse, then we'll see the linebacker depth start to start to hit the field. Uh, but in, in the meantime, in those first two games, I want to see what Tyler Davis can bring.
2: Yeah, I'm I'm very interested to see what Jackson Carmen's going to do. There's a little bit of nervous and a little bit of excited. Um, Tyler Davis is definitely the player I'm most excited to actually see hit the field, though. Uh, Him or Skalski after so long? Skalski sort of seemed like he was primed to get onto the field last year before having to take a medical red shirt. And he's always been a guy the coaching staff has built up, so you would hope that he has a big season.
1: I'm curious who we're going to run in the the beef package this year. I think the lack of depth on the defensive tackle position might prevent some of those guys from from getting any rushing attempts, but you never know. That could be where Tyler Davis makes a name for himself too.
0: Yeah, I don't know if there's going to be a, a beef package in the sense that we'll have a defensive tackle at tailback. I think I think ETN is going to be the short yardage back for every every fourth and short, every goal line situation. Um, but fullback, you know, that's on the table. That's on the table for someone like Tyler Davis. You know, he's, he's a bit shorter uh, and still, you know, north of 300, so he could be the perfect uh, bulldog fullback in that regard. But uh, I don't know if we'll see a defensive tackle getting carries till perhaps Brian Brisee is here in a couple of years. That, that's, uh, that's something I'd love to see. But this year it's all ETN and short yardage.
1: That makes sense. Well, uh, you know, certainly looking forward to this season on the Clemson side. I do want to flip, guys, and we, in preparing for this po- podcast, um, and we appreciate you guys coming on. Just had one last question. This is going to be casting our gaze across uh, the landscape of college football. Um, a lot of people, us included, penciling Clemson in, penciling Alabama in. I just wanted to ask you guys, though, like, what is the darkest timeline of the college football final four? for a Clemson fan or for you personally, when I see this timeline. Like, feasible outcome, you know, the, the four teams that get in, presumably Clemson not one of those, that would drive you crazy.
0: Oh, I know that. I know that. Well, South Carolina would never happen, at least not with the schedule they have this that's year. Not
1: feasible, Alex.
0: Uh, yeah, yeah, you're right. That's not feasible. I would say Alabama and Georgia, two SEC teams getting in, would really, really make us unhappy. Throw in Ohio State because everyone from South Carolina hates Ohio and by extension, Ohio State, and then uh, Notre Dame, just because everyone from South Carolina also hates Notre Dame since, you know, there aren't as many Catholics down here. Um, So, yeah, Georgia, Bama, Ohio State, Notre Dame, that is the the feasible nightmare scenario, the feasible nightmare playoff for a Clemson fan.
2: Yeah, I think Georgia and Alabama are pretty easy gimmies in terms of just – the national discourse has circled around that drain so many times that we have to go down that road. I just – I don't want to, and I've dreaded it before, and I just don't want to have to do it. In terms of filling out the rest of it, the Pac-12 could be a chaos generator. Washington making it would – I don't know if that would be truly horrendous, but it would only take one upset in, the, like, the Pac-12 championship game for, like, Utah to sneak in the back door. Or for like that year, Colorado had a particularly strong team. Out of the Big 12, it would probably be Texas because Texas being back. Like we've seen Oklahoma hit the playoffs before. We kind of know not to take them seriously. If Texas is back, people are going to go hook, line, and sinker for the Big 12 team. So I think it would be, for me, sort of a Alabama, Georgia, Texas, and then Utah fourth. Or like maybe one of the Arizona schools out of nowhere, like some sort of Pac-12 at large.
1: It won't be you, bad. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. I think I mean I, I share your sentiments around. You don't want our recruiting contemporaries to make it in when we don't. Um, so fill in the blank with who those are. I think you guys nailed it. Um, I think Texas A&M making it actually is not a great outcome for Clemson fans either. Seeing Jimbo kind of return to the national conversation is a very elite coach getting over the hump there doesn't help our prospects of recruiting in his territory. And I generally, you know, he's a rival coach, like to see him lose. So um, for me, it's that. Um, And I guess also just from more of a like fan spectator standpoint, if we're we're playing like in the peach bowl or some crappy consolation prize game, um, I just don't want to see another ugly, you know, blowout type scenario. So a, a bad scenario there is Alabama or Georgia again having to face I think Matt that's what you're referring to with like a pack PAC 12 team or uh, god forbid a big big 10 west team sneaks into the playoff like Nebraska oh no if
2: Wisconsin gets in I'm all there for that that's not a nightmare for me that would be incredible
1: I live in Chicago if Wisconsin makes that I'm going home yeah I guess there's probably a flip side to this Clemson can't make it but you got to pick like your favorite matchups maybe we can address that on the next show Um, but, uh, guys, I guess maybe it's time to make our call for the year. You guys feeling a title defense here for Clemson?
0: I am. Yes. I think, I think, uh, at the very least Clemson will make the playoff. I can't say for sure. We'll, we'll make it to the final since I don't know who we would play in the semi, but I would be surprised if with a finish worse than number two.
2: It takes so much going right, and there are a couple of key positions where I can see a couple of ill-timed injuries really getting Clemson down bad. So I'm going to hedge a little bit and say just comfortably getting to the ACC championship game is a very good – I mean, it's a ridiculous thing to say is the floor for the program for the year. Yeah, it it is like a very comfortable floor given that, you know, the rivals in our division are currently wandering through the wilderness – It does seem like something that Clemson's like, you know, just going to get. And then that should put you in a position to contend for the playoffs, particularly with the caveat of being the national championship defender. Anything from there, you sort of just got to hope for good positioning, good performance in the playoffs and keeping the recruiting trail rolling.
0: Mm-hmm. And yeah, and you can't be mad if if you bow out in the first round of the playoff either, since that that really is the goal. You know, as long as you're there and you have a, a chance to compete, you can't be upset unless there's just some sort of boneheaded coaching decision or some sort of injury that robs you of of your best chance to win it. Uh, so you know, I, I think 13 and one, I don't want to say is the worst case scenario, but but sweeping the ACC and the, the regular season schedule in the ACC title game and bowing out in the first round. The playoff is – I don't want to say that's the worst-case scenario, but I think it's the likely worst case, whereas I think best case, you know, you're 15-0, maybe 14-1 and if you have some sort of slip-up somewhere like Texas A&M or Syracuse or I don't want to say South Carolina, but maybe uh, – yeah, that won't happen. It'd be If, if, if Clemson will lose a game, it will be uh, Texas A&M.
2: The one that I'm just very afraid of is NC State finally pulling it off.
0: Um. I don't see it. Not with everything they lost. They lost all their best players.
2: Yeah, no, that quarterback they had was cold. But uh, that's the one that just makes me irrationally worried.
0: Yeah, but I, I think their window is shut. They they missed. They had what seventeen draft picks in two years, and yeah. the same the same amount of wins in those last two years. That they, their window is shut. They've they've missed their boat.
1: I mean, perhaps from a you know, a Clemson's caught sleeping type of game and. That's probably something when you do just talk about the regular season uh, does come into play here, just complacency. But um, again, I'm going to lean on the culture built culture, established the coaching staff, what they've proven. that really hasn't been an issue to date with, with past success. Um, I don't think complacency is what lost Clemson, the Syracuse game. Maybe you could say pit on some level. I think that was just a team that was playing with fire the whole season and it they did finally catch up to them. had
2: that one little shovel pass, and it just genuinely looked like it venables. Like, it was one of the few times I've seen him truly out-schemed. Honestly, it might be the only time.
0: Can't believe a national championship Clemson team lost to Nate Peterman.
1: Yeah, that's one of the
2: funniest <laughs> details.
0: It really is, because look what he's done, <laughs> done
1: now. Man, it breaks him. It breaks him. <laughs> he outlasted Andrew Luck.
2: Oh, yeah, oh
1: too soon. Too soon, Nick. Had to, had to get it in. Nah. Uh, well, boys, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, John did not make it, so I'm going to allow you guys to drag him momentarily if you need to. Hmm.
2: I feel like the Nate Peterman thing really, like I, I feel like I got it in there.
0: Yeah, because John's a Bills fan, and, and <laughs> Nate Peterman threw all those, those, like, what, five interceptions in the first half when he was on the Bills. So, John, that's – We'll, we'll leave it with that, John. Perfect. Well, uh, guys, um, everyone, you can
1: find the writing prowess of Alex and Matt on at ShakingTheSouthland.com. Uh, well, thank you, boys, so much for coming out and um, look to have you on again. Maybe maybe John will surface eventually. Um, thanks again for coming out. Um, please continue to produce that great film review and preview content. Um, we love reading that and it uh, keeps us informed throughout the year. So, Appreciate that. Um, To our listeners, thanks again for sticking out this long show. We also have another final season preview show coming from the podcast trio. So uh, stay tuned for that one as well later on in the week before Georgia Tech. Um, You know where to find us on your podcast app of choice. We are also on social media. Pretty sure you know where to find us there. We will wrap with that. And as always, go Tigers.